Kula. I am excited to be here. And I say that every week. And I, I, every time I get up here, I should say, I do say I'm excited to be here. But this week, I was really praying over this message and really struggling uh, to write it and really wrestling throughout the week over what uh, God might have to say. And I just had a sense uh, in prayer and whilst I went that I, I truly believe God is a, has a purpose, has a plan. He, he wants to break down some strongholds, some lies, lay flat some works of the enemy in this place today. So my invitation this morning is that as a congregation, as a family, we would lean in and perhaps dare, dare to believe that God might actually crumble and break and set free our hearts in his name. So I'm real, really pumped. Hey, if you have a Bible, would you please open it up to Exodus? Uh, we're going to go to chapter 34, starting verse 5. But if you haven't met me uh, before, my name is David uh, Scambry. I get the joy of being a pastor here at the church. It is a joy. This church family is amazing. And what God is planning to do in this family and has already done, and what he's planning to do in cooling Gadda and has already started to do, I am psyched. Um, but we're in a series at the moment uh, called Oh Come Let Us Adore. And I love that title. So, something about adoration that's really helpful for everyone to just kind of glimpse at why we named it this, is that adoration isn't saying good job, buddy. Adoration, it, it, it's not like a pat on the head. Adoration is to be transfixed, to be absolutely captivated by the beauty and the wonder and the nature of something. We as a church are lost in adoration for Jesus because he is beautiful before he ever moves, before he does another thing in our lives for who he is. He is worthy of our adoration. So we've done this series so far. We spoke about Jesus. We've spoken about who he is, his nature, the incarnation, which is when he went from being God eternal to being God eternal, but somehow also wrapped in human flesh. And uh, we, we went from there uh, to talk about this thing called the kingdom that is spoken about the whole way through the Bible. And today I get the joy of asking, asking and hopefully answering a question. Why is the kingdom of God good news? So we're going to dive into some scripture in a moment. Before we do, how about we pray together as a family because we know as a group that we need God in this room for any word that I'm about to say to be effectual and powerful. So Father God, we thank you that you have always had a purpose, always had a plan, always had a vision for this moment right here, right now, for every human being in this room, God. You know them by name. You know them uh, by, by their stories, by every tear they've ever cried, by every hair on the head, every laugh they've ever let out, God. You know them, so you know every one of us so deeply. And you have purposed to do something powerful amidst your people today. That God, there will be lies torn down today. There will be strongholds flattened. That the things we believe about you that are not of you and you never say about you will no longer grip us so tight. And we may leave this place actually joy-filled, actually celebrating, actually caught in awe and in wonder and adoration for who you are. For that is the only fitting place for any of us to be. May we, may we learn by your spirit why. Jesus, by your mighty name and by the power of your blood, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to read some scripture. Um, and before we do, it's Exodus 34, verse 5. If you're not there already, it will be on the screen behind me. But before we do read the scripture, I want to give some context. Why? Because otherwise we'll have no, no idea what's going on. So this is a story, a conversation. 
It's between a guy called Moses and God. Now, this isn't their first conversation. Moses and God have had a few chats before this. And in their first recorded conversation, uh, Moses is actually a pretty far away from his people in a really bad place, really bad way, I should say. Uh, and God appears to him dramatically and says to him, hey, hey, Moses. And Moses goes, yes. And Moses says, this is not actually how it goes in the Bible. I'm just <laughs> paraphrasing. Uh, Moses says, yes. And God says, I have a call on your life. I have, I have a work for you to do. And Moses goes, oh, here we go. And God says, I want you to take that half a million Israelites that are currently under bondage by the most lethal, brutal, tyrannical, powerful empire in our world, the ones who have them and depend economically on your 600,000 Israelites, and I want you to take those people and I want you to lead them to freedom. Moses shirks away. You can imagine like, oh, who, me? I think you mean somebody else, right? And God says, no, you. Moses, you, not because you're doing it, not because you're the right person, but because I'm God and I can use you. And Moses, still a little bit shaken, still a little bit unsure about it, uh, God says, let me tell you something. Let me tell you who I am. Let, let me give you my name. He says, I am Yahweh. I am who I am. And I want to set the Israelites free. I am who I am. Come and get to know me. And Moses, filled with confidence, though kind of still somewhat scared, as I imagine if we were told that we were crumbling the greatest empires on planet Earth today, we might also be a little bit uh, nervous. Um, but he goes in confidence in that promise. He goes to the Israelites, friends, friends, have you heard that he is who he is, the God who is right now being who he is, the God who will always continue to be who he is, the God who will finish the work he's begun and continue for all eternity to be faithful to himself. And in this moment right now is working in accordance with his character. He said, I'm setting the Israelites free. And so let me tell you what that means. The Israelites are going free. After a bunch of ups and a bunch of downs and a bunch of mess, eventually the Israelites do, in fact, get set free. Now, I don't know in this room if anyone here has ever been in slavery. Uh, I'm going to assume not. Um, I also haven't yet been a slave. Hopefully, that remains the way. But I have an imagining of what I would hope freedom would look like should I ever become a slave. You see, if I was in bondage working nine till five, kidding, it's more like six till, I don't actually know, really long hours, I'm sure. Um, and if I was working those hours every day, all day, without ceasing, you know, calluses the size of my face and, and just dying pretty much, I would think freedom sounds like a comfortable mattress. You know, beautiful, beautiful coffee. You know, freedom to go and relax and enjoy next to a pool. Oh, that sounds delightful, right? And God sets the Israelites free into a desert. That certainly wouldn't be what I was hoping for. A barren wasteland. And yet it's here, in the midst of the desert, in the midst of the promise that's been answered, but really not the way you'd kind of dream of it being answered. Here, that Moses steps up and says, no, 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 my people. God is who he is. He is being who he is right now. In Israel, my friends, we will be free. I want to get to know God. And he turns to God and says, God, show me your glory. Strange statement, but what he's saying is, show me who you are. Help me. You are who you are. Well, I want to know who you are. Reveal yourself to me. And this is the story that follows. Exodus 34, verse 5. It says, then the Lord came down 
in the cloud. And he stood there with him and proclaimed or revealed or exposed, that's what it means, proclaimed his name, the Lord, the Yahweh, the I am who I am. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Yahweh, the I am who I am, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands of generations and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Wow. We're going to take some time to read that a whole lot more today because if we read scripture that quickly, we ain't getting nothing out of it. Have you ever been the worst at something in this room? Have you ever been the absolute worst at something? Cooking? <laughs> right. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, you know, like maybe amongst your siblings, amongst families, amongst your friends, maybe it's a sport, maybe you're not the best planner in the world. Maybe, you know, there's just something you're not great at and you're the, actually probably the worst at it. In 37 AD, there was a guy, this is just a few years after Jesus died. He never met Jesus. He didn't know Jesus. But there was a guy, his name was Caligula. He gets the joy, the title, the prestige of being forever Rome's worst emperor. I don't know how, because he's only the third, and they have many more. And so the fact that no one could top this guy really says a lot about how bad an emperor this guy was. So beyond the ordinary bad emperor stuff, you know, not looking after your people, you know, mishandling taxes, generally being an absolute pompous whatever, and, you know, whatever, he goes on and stands before all of his people, and he tells them one day, I, Caligula, am God. Worship me. And he expects an entire empire to bow down before him and pay homage to him as a God. Now, if you know Roman history, which I'm not sure how many people would, but if you do know Roman history, you would know that they actually did have a cult following where they called Roman emperors gods. But let me tell you, that was always after they died. To say you were a Roman god whilst you were still alive is absurd, particularly seeing as Caligula really didn't have any superpowers. So it's not like he could just do anything to prove it. He just said, I am God, and the superpower he had was the ability to say to any soldier in his empire, kill the person if they don't agree, and uh, they would have to do it. So the whole empire started worshipping him. But who knows, when you do something to be loved by people, when you're doing something to get that adoration or to get some glory from someone, it doesn't matter what you do, it'll never be enough, right? When you're pursuing the applause of people, you're always left famished. So after a short while, he gets bored of being God, and he thinks, well, where can I go now? So he decides to declare a war, and he rallies all the soldiers he can muster, and he gets them all to line up on the battlefield, and, you know, it, it, you, you're talking archers, we're talking spearmen, we're talking swordmen, we're talking ballistas, we're talking every soldier, cavalry, whatever, cavalry, I should say, and they're all lined up at the battlefront, which just so happens to also be the beach, which also happens to be the place where the ocean meets the land. And Caligula says, step forward. Suddenly their feet are wet. Caligula says, take another step. Suddenly their knees are wet. And he says, today, I, God of Rome, Caligula, wage war on the God of the ocean, Neptune. And we are going to take possession of the ocean. You can't make this. This is history. This literally happened. This is insane. And so he tells the soldiers, take off your helmets. So they took off their helmets. And he said, we are going to steal the plunder, steal the bounty of Neptune. As you slaughter 
the water, take up any shells you find, and fill up your helmet with shells, because that's the currency of Neptune, I guess. And so, here's a bunch of professional soldiers who have been to war and seen brothers lost and die and killed people, flailing around with swords and spears against water. I bet you well, there were no fish. Everything else had swam away. It, it was just splashing, and probably the odd miss slash probably catches Steve's knee down beside you, you know? Like, that is what's happening right now. After hours of this, Caligula gets up and says, Boys, we did it. <laughs> we beat Neptune. Huzzah! <laughs> like, he says, today's the day. Um, and so... Neptune was defeated by Caligula, and everybody celebrated. (laughs) And at the end, he got killed by his own bodyguard. His own bodyguard killed him. They were so sick of his nonsense that his own protection came up behind him and killed him. This is crazy, because bodyguards aren't meant to kill you. It shows how unloved he is. And more than that, Aside from amassing a large swath of shells, he did nothing good for his entire reign. Why is the kingdom of God good news? I'll tell you why. It's because it's not the kingdom of Caligula. It's because it's not the kingdom of David. It's not the kingdom of any emperor who's ever lived. It's not the kingdom of Scott. It's not the kingdom of any person in this church or any person at all. The kingdom of God is good news because it's the kingdom of God. And if you really want to come to a place where you know it's good news, you've got to get to know the king. The kingdom of God is good news because our king is so, so good. Let's read some scripture. Uh, back to verse 6, it says in, in, in Exodus 34, And he passed, that is God, he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord. That is, I am who I am. I am who I am. I am the compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger. And I'm going to interrupt myself there, because there is an elephant in the room I think I need to address right now. That is this. If I ask you to define God to me, I know what you will say back. Oh, he's good. You know that saying, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. You know, like we all know the right answer. If anyone here went to kids' church or served in kids' church, we know that when somebody asks you if God is good or if who God is or about him, you say he's good. Right? Here's my question. I have two questions for you. First is this. When life doesn't go the way you expect it, what do you say to God? Where are you? I thought you were better than this. I thought you were meant to protect me, God. God, what the heck? This is, you were meant to be my, what, what on earth? Ah, oh, I probably deserve it. I'm such a sinner. He probably hates me. Um, it makes sense. I, it's probably my fault. When life doesn't go the way you expected, how do you respond to it? Yesterday, I had the most unfortunate calamity in the world. I'll probably never recover. I was driving around this corner in my beautiful car, and the corner, the little brick corner right there that I'm going to hack apart probably tomorrow, we, I just scratched my car the side of it, and it's got a giant gash down the side of it now. And I turned to God, and I said, God, I'm meant to be writing a message about how good you are. Where are you? And then I laughed and said, no, that was entirely my fault. I should have been looking where I was going a bit better. But what's our instinct? What's our response? Second question, what about when you're tempted to sin? If God is good and he says do something, then that thing will always be good. 
If God is good, then his law is good. So when God says, trust me, don't go that way, would you just back me? Would you just trust me? What do we do? Do we say, God, no way. Man, I know better than you. I know I'm meant to go that way, but that's probably just generic for everyone. For me personally, in my situation, I'm going to go this way right now. I know Jesus will forgive me. We're good. Or do we say, God, I don't understand. I'll do it your way, but you owe me one, right? Like, what do we do in the moment of sin? I think we land not do we believe God is good and not do we not believe God is good. I think for the vast majority of us, we're somewhere in the tension between. I think for most of us, we genuinely do believe God is good. And I think for most of us, we really struggle with what that means and looks like in our lives. What does God say about God? I think for most of us, we build our view of God on a narrative. And that narrative may have come from our parents and the way they raised us. It may come from media or our friends or that one Christian person we once knew. It may have come from The Simpsons or Facebook. It, 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 I mean, they're actually they're teaching theology. That's the problem. Like, they are. Um, it comes from more sources, and we build our view of God on them. But what does God say about God? When God comes and introduces himself, how does he describe himself? Let, let's read. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, I am who I am, I am who I am. I am compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, abounding in faithfulness, maintaining love to a thousand generations. That's a lot in case you don't know. I am forgiving of sin, of rebellion, of wickedness. If you don't know Hebrew, that's all three Hebrew words for sin and for brokenness. He used all of them to show that his forgiveness is all encompassing and there's no sin you can do that outdoes his nature to forgive you. And he is just, and he hates injustice, and he will stand against brokenness. That is who our God says he is. And if the God we believe in in this room isn't that God, then I, I want to say something. We aren't believing in the God of the Bible. We've created an idol. Room goes heavy. Everyone feels guilty. But here's the thing. God is gracious. God is compassionate. Not because you believe it, but because it's who he is, whether you believe it or not. He is who he is, and in this room right now, he is being compassionate. In this room right now, he is being merciful. Our God is a God of beauty. And what does that look like for us Today, I've got two scriptures I want to quickly share. Uh, Matthew 6, 23b to 33, it says this, Your heavenly Father knows what you need, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things that you need, they will be given to you as well. Philippians 4, 12 to 13. Actually, before I read that one, I want to point out what that one says. God knows what you need. People, people, God knows what you need. I know life can be tough. Um, I, I don't know how tough it can be, to be honest. I'm sure there are stories in this room that would shock me. God knows what you need. Trust him, and he will meet your need. In the garden, Adam, he says, I see what you need, and I provide for it and create Eve. Jesus, throughout his ministry, he sees needs, and he orchestrates Breakthrough, healing, and hope. 
In this particular instance, he's literally saying, food, clothes, and shelter. God knows what you need. Not ethereally, not this idea, not this philosophy, not this, uh, I know God knows what I need. But like, no, literally, your personal life, he knows your needs, and he wants to meet them. Philippians 4, 12 to 13. I know what it is to be in need, though, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content, and in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. What does he say? I can give you a life. I can meet your needs. I can give a life that abounds no matter the circumstances you're in. And God says, yeah, I provide for your needs and I will always catch you. I will always catch you. Just keep trusting, just keep going. But even when it ain't going the way you expected, I am your strength. Even when life takes a curveball and you get whacked with health issues or hit with financial issues or your relationships begin to get strained, God says, look to me, look, look at me. I am your strength. And he promises, Galatians 5, he says, the, the, the fruit, the reward, the natural outcome of me being present, the fruit of the Spirit is love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience. It's kind of, do you see these things? These are things we want. And God is the giver of these things just when he's present. Get it? When God comes, good follows. It's huge. There's a quote by Jim Elliott. He says, God always gives his best to those who leave the choice with him. Jim Elliott's a missionary who gave his life for God. God always gives his best to, the, to those who leave, him, uh, leave the choice with him. It's huge. It's magnificent. I want to tell God what I want. I don't want to scratch my car, please. Please, God. And then I do. And I'm like, God, what on earth? But what if in that moment I quoted Job and I said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be his holy name. Who am I? It's a car. It's irrelevant. God, you are good beyond compare. Oh, I trust you. I want your goodness, not the goodness I can factory up in my silly little brain. The kingdom of God is good because our king is so, so, so good. And the kingdom of God is good for another reason that we're going to see in a minute. And the reason is because our king is so, so close. It says in verse 5, Then the Lord came down in the cloud, and he stood there with Moses with him, and proclaimed his name, revealed, exposed his name, the Lord, and he passed in front of Moses, uh, revealing himself, revealing his identity, revealing his character. I have a question for you. How do kings normally make themselves known? Has anyone here ever seen Shrek? All right. So there is a, there is a king uh, in Shrek. I'm not going to say the name of him. It's a it's a, it's, it's a bad word. Um, it's, uh, he is in a tower and telling everyone what to do. And he's yelling at them from the top of a tower, this is what I want, this is who I am, this is my decree. This is kind of the image of kings we get throughout history. They stand on balconies, they stand on the top of podiums, and they yell to their people. If they don't do that, 
They're usually in the middle of a festival, a great big procession where some guys are throwing food and, and, and things you want over the edge, you know, and everyone, all the amassing crowds are like, oh my gosh, food, bread, whatever, you know, and they're getting very excited. This is our, God, uh, this is our king. He's so good. He's so good. You know, and there's this procession or the arts come out or the beauty or the best designs in town. Everyone's dressed well, you know, procession. Or the other thing they do, and probably as well, is they send ambassadors, people to go in their stead, people who will go in their place because the king is far too important, far too good to be seen in your presence, that's for sure. How does God make himself known? How does God make himself known in this story? The Lord comes down. He goes to Moses. The Lord comes down in a cloud. And that that word, the cloud, the idea of it, uh, it's first and foremost to shield the glory of God from Moses because God is so big, so good, so powerful. But second of all, it's also an image of his glory. That is, it fills, it consumes. It's it's this giant, all-encompassing thing. So he comes down in his glory uh, and in his restraint. And he stood there with Moses. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, stood there with Moses. Moses, one-on-one, having a chat. Our God. And he proclaimed his name. He said, let me show you who I am. Let me open myself up. Have a look. I want you to know my character. I want you to know my story. Look in my heart. Let me expose, reveal, proclaim myself to you that you may see who I am. This is our God. He draws near. He comes in close. He goes one-on-one. He says, I'm in. I want you. I love you. I am compassionate. I am kind. I am slow to anger. I am gracious and merciful. I am abounding in love. I am abounding in faithfulness. I am maintaining my love to a thousand generations. I forgive all the wrongs you could ever think you could do against me, not because of you, but because it's who I am. I am God. And he's like, what on earth? We serve him, and yet he's still just in his love and stands against unrighteousness. And we will get to that in a minute. And we can't really talk about the kingdom of God and how good it is, uh, you, you know, in the king of the kingdom, until we get to a very uh, specific person called Jesus. Now, it's Christmas, so that name's floating around at the moment. But, uh, you know, if you don't know who he is uh, for any reason, let me, let me share. Jesus is God. And Embodying the flesh of humans, born as a baby and raised in life as a human, but still God. Weird, strange, divine tension. Let me read a verse about him. Hebrews 1.3. The Son, that is Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact, the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is king. Jesus is compassionate. Jesus is merciful. Jesus is slow to anger. Jesus abounds in love and faithfulness, maintains steadfastly his love, and forgives unrighteousness, and yet is perfectly just and opposes the unjust. How did Jesus live? 
In fact, this scripture, if you, if you didn't know, uh, Exodus 34, it is um, the most quoted scripture in the entire Bible by the Bible. It's quoted repetitively over and over and over and over and over and over again. In fact, this is considered the John 3.16 for any churchgoers. This is the John 3.16 of the Jews. You know, we open John 3.16 at Christian school events. They open Exodus 34.5, and they just can't help but let's express the character of God. So what was Jesus like? Well, we hear the word, the echoes of this verse, even in the cries to Jesus. He says this in the scriptures, Lord, Lord, have compassion upon me. And it says in the scriptures over and over, and Jesus was moved with compassion. We see cries from two blind people, Lord, have mercy. Lord, uh, I think it says, Son of David, have mercy, have mercy on us. And it says what? It says, and the Lord took mercy on them. We see stories as people come against him and antagonize him, and he doesn't smite them with fire and with power. No, in fact, one of his own uh, disciples suggests he should smite them with power, and he, he kind of like brushes him off. It's a bad idea. And he, what does he do? Slow to anger. Jesus reveals the character of God in the way he lives. And as he started his ministry, we see in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, it says this, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee. This is the first time we see Jesus doing missions in in the gospel of Mark. It says he went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. Come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. You see, Jesus had an expectation that when he introduced the kingdom of God, where? Drawing near. Celebration, joy, parties, excitement, yelps of gratitude would be the norm, the response, the overwhelming abundance of the human heart would be a declaration of God's goodness in response to the God who has come near in all his kingdom, in all his influence, in all his wisdom, in all his power. (laughs) You see, God being good isn't enough. If our view of God's goodness is that it's in another kingdom, in another country, in another planet, for another people. If we say, yeah, that's good for, you know, X, Y, Z, perfect Christian over there. But for me, I don't really believe God's good to me. I don't really believe God is who he says he is to me. I I, I call God a liar. And we do that and we don't mean to, but there's a tension, a struggle, a wrestle in our souls where God says, listen to me, my children. I am not just God to them, but I am. But I draw close one-on-one. I come to you personally, in this room, every one of us. This isn't for your neighbor. This is for you. God comes personally. The kingdom is near. It's close to your heart. He's God. He is God. He is compassionate to you right now. He is merciful to you right now. He is slow to anger with you right now. He is abounding in love to you right now. His faithfulness for you is abounding also. He is, he is maintaining his love to you without ceasing, to a thousand generations. And how, how do we respond? There is only one true way to respond when the Spirit of God opens our hearts to receive and see the goodness of that news, and that is partying, that is celebration, that is praise. You see, who is the God of the Bible? 
Then the Lord came down in a cloud, and he stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands of generations and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. I'm going to do justice to this to the best of my ability. We read verses like this, and, and it's like we've read three quarters of God saying how beautiful and gracious and kind he is, and then we hear God might maybe, maybe have wrath, have punishment. And our response, God, you're awful. Pah! I'm not following you, God. What on earth, God? I thought you were kind and compassionate and loving. Clearly not, though you just said you were. Clearly, you are angry and venomous and you want to hurt people. And whilst I make mockery of it, I do this in my soul. So often when I'm wrestling with condemnation and guilt, when I'm walking through the trials of life, I find myself entering this verse and disregarding the three quarters of God's declaration about himself before. And even in doing so, all I've done is misrepresented this verse to myself because it aligns more with my view of God. In other words, I fed an idol. You see, there's a... The God of the Bible does sometimes intervene. Sometimes his wrath is active. Sometimes his punishment is in the moment, and he steps in, and he says, enough is enough. You think you can get away with that? No more. Your injustice is too much. And yet when we read scriptures, that's not what we read. His majority, his, his, his normal way of being is... You see, the God of the Bible, uh, I'll give you a great example. He called Israel, that is his people, to be his people, and yet they sucked at it. Uh, you want to know who are the worst at being his people? Well, by the end of their call, by the end of this period, it says that they were the worst, worse than all of their neighbors, that they had gone so much further than anyone else at dishonoring the image of God. And so God says, I am going to reveal my wrath, my punishment to you. Now, here's the thing. If you were in this room and you thought, well, that's a little bit mean, isn't it? Let me give you some context to this. If you've ever read the prophets, you will get bored of them pretty quickly. And I don't mean that in a rude way. What I mean is, is it says the same thing over and over and over and over. God's wrath is coming. Turn back. God's wrath is coming. Turn back. God's wrath is coming. Come on, guys. Look to him. Love him. Trust him. His way is better. God is punishing people because they are sinning and turning away from him. Stop it. Turn to him. He cries. He pleads. He begs. He implores. He seeks generation after generation after generation after generation, chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter in the Old Testament. Turn back. He is slow to anger. Oh, he is slow to anger. And in the end, what we see isn't an active wrath. It's a passive wrath. What do I mean? He doesn't smite them with fire from above. There was a young upstart kingdom next door called Babylon who was coming up anyway and was going to do some damage anyway. And God says, I tell you what, this is my punishment. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remove my hedge of protection, my hand of protection from you. And they are conquered after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of rebellion against God by another nation for 70 years. We read here, 
He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents, the third and fourth generation. What I want to share here is a thought. Um, I, don't, I haven't shared much of my story with this church from up here, and, and, and so, and I probably won't do too much of it today either. But when I was great, when I was raised, I didn't have the best father in the world, uh, and and he wound up going to prison uh, for the way he treated myself and my sisters. And um, in in that space and in that place, I, I remember after he went to prison, I I went to the psychologist we got, and um, I said I said her name was Mo, and I, I said Mo, um, his young thirteen-year-old David, and I said Mo. I'm so scared. I, 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 don't, I don't want to end up like him. I don't want to end up the way he was. I don't want to end up as abusive and horrible as he was. I'm terrified. She said, yeah, that makes sense. I can understand. And uh, she shared uh, a fact, a statue. She enlightened me about something that I don't know its name, but it goes like this. When a master whips their slave, the natural following is the slave will whip theirs. And the natural following is that slave will whip theirs. When a child is abused, the natural response as they grit their teeth and say, I will never do this myself. In the midst of saying that, they lash out in abuse in the moments of weakness and they do to their kids what was done to them. I said, Mo, Mo, how, how do I avoid this? She said, grip your knuckles tight. Be strong and just don't. I felt defeated. 13-year-old David, deflated, wounded. He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and to the fourth generation. He removes his hand and says, let me show you where sin goes, where sin goes. But I want to make a point here. He punishes the children of the guilty parents for the sin of the guilty parents, except for one time. One time, he punishes the son of an innocent parent for the guilt of everyone else. One time, Jesus steps into the picture and says, I, and and, and get this, I will endure despising the shame for the joy set before me, despising the shame. I will endure the cross. And when I became a Christian, I encountered something I had never seen before, which was this white knuckle just trying to be enough. It never, ever, ever was going to work. And I bumped into Jesus. And he set me free and broke something in my heart that I couldn't have broken just by being strong enough. You see, he came against this curse and with his own hand and as the propitiation, as the one who stands in the middle, he took that curse on himself upon that cross. And there is this beautiful song that says, I will never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. And I, David, I will never know. We, calling out a new life, we will never know how much it cost Jesus to break the curse of sin, to break the brokenness of sin upon that cross. And we as a people get to stand free, genuinely, legitimately. It's not the God is good all the time, all the time God is good. It's the God is good. It's practical. It's real. It's present. He is real in my life. 
He is compassionate to me and to this church and to everyone here. He sees your wounds and he sees the pains and he sees the hurt. And who is he? He is compassionate. And it says he is Yahweh. He is being in this moment, in this place, who he is. Compassionate, merciful, slow to anger. My friends, I know it's hard to believe, but in this room, God of heaven is abounding in love over you. And he is faithful. And he is forgiving. And he is chain breaking. You see, Jesus, Jesus set us free. And we get today to stand in a moment and worship and praise and celebrate that name that broke the chains of sin in my life. And not just in that one way, but in so many ways beyond, in so many other ways. He has come and shown his goodness. And I can only share of my own story, but I know because I've heard the stories of the people in this family who have over and over and over and over heard and seen and shared how good our God is. Moments of provision a breakthrough and of healing. Moments where all things failed and yet joy prevailed. Moments when we have walked and walked and hoped and hoped and nothing's happened and yet the peace of God has supplanted the chaos and the fear and we have marched on boldly in Jesus' name. There have been miracles in this family that we have seen as a family. My friends, it's not happened because that moment God happened to choose to do it out of the blue and out of the uh, kindness of his heart for a second. He is who he is. Today, in this room, right now, will you dare to believe that God is being who he is with you, near to your heart, 